0: To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound.
1: Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. Women make up more than half the population, but have been woefully neglected in the way we have studied funded and focused medical research and technology. One local company is part of the wave working to address this imbalance. Junofem is a med tech company who make a device to help measure and improve pelvic floor health and performance. It is an issue that can affect up to one in three women worldwide, and their Femfit device is part of their work to remove the stigma around urinary incontinence. It's a very cool company Addressing a really big problem spun out of the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. Joining us is the co founder and CEO, Dr. Jenny Kruger, to talk the journey, the problem, and working to address the systemic imbalance toward women in health. Tanakwe, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on.
1: Hey, first up, let's talk about this problem. As with so many things to do with uh, the experience of women in the world, right, it's something that is not talked about as much as it should be. So what is the situation with urinary incontinence and how many people does it affect?
2: Yeah, you're quite right. It is something that we don't speak about enough. Um, it affects many more than you would imagine, Uh as you mentioned in your intro, one in three, so that's 30% of all women will struggle with urinary incontinence at some stage in their lives. Um, And this is a a frightening statistic, actually, uh, particularly as we know that we can do something about it. Um, It's not normal, but it's common. Uh, So, yeah, we're, we're in the business of trying to help women to realize that they can actually do something about the problem. And uh, it's not all down to just surgery or putting up with it. And so how
1: does that manifest? Because I imagine with that number of people affected, that that many women affected, a lot of people wouldn't know that it was a problem they could address or do something about, right? And just kind of think that's just, uh, that's just the way things are.
2: Yeah, that's the problem. Many people do think that that's just what we have to put up with. It's a natural part of aging or it's what happens after you've had a baby and um, we just have to uh, disprove those myths that it's not, there is definitely something you can do about it and it typically manifests as um, involuntary leakage of urine, um, the most common type is when you leak, when you laugh or cough or jump, sneeze, sometimes just intense physical activity causes women to leak and um, it doesn't discriminate for age. It doesn't discriminate for ethnicity. It's a worldwide problem amongst um, most of the population. We are most vulnerable post-childbirth and as we age and particularly towards the menopause. Um, but it can happen at any point in our lives. So, yeah, it's um, it's an issue. We need to talk about it. We need to get it out there. So.
1: And many people may have heard people, you know, kind of making light of it or something like, oh, won't, won't be jumping on the trampoline, you yeah. know, <laughs> but like, how, you know, how should people be thinking about this and what can be done?
2: So I think um, women should first of all be aware that, as I said, it is common, but not normal. Any involuntary leakage of urine is not normal. Um You will likely be aware of your pelvic floor muscles for the first time perhaps when you are pregnant. You may have uh, classes from antenatal classes or be aware when your tummy is growing bigger and bigger that you start to have a bit of leakage. Doing pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy we know is very effective, particularly for after the baby is born. But even after the baby is born, you might find that many women will experience those symptoms that I've described, particularly when they do pick up their baby, they want to go for a walk around the block and every time they do that, they they leak. So your first port of call then is um, containment products, so pads or something like that, speaking to their friends or their mums or their aunties and sometimes unfortunately it is normalised and so people don't feel the need that they should do something. But if you're still leaking even 12 weeks after having that baby, you should be doing something about it. And typically for those kind of incontinence symptoms I've described, strengthening those pelvic floor muscles which support the bladder will definitely help relieve those symptoms. So it's not something you have to put up with. It is a muscle. It's a muscle like any other muscle in the body. You go to the gym, you train, you know, you make yourself strong and functional and it's the same with the pelvic floor muscles. Um, So we encourage women to do that. Unfortunately, it isn't something that is intuitive. So when you are given instructions on how to do pelvic floor exercises, it's usually in the form of a verbal uh, instruction or a pamphlet, if 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 you can get hold of those pamphlets. And it's descriptions like squeeze and lift and hold, and it's squeeze and lift and hold. What mm-hmm. you know? What? <laughs> so um, I think giving women clarity and uh, effective means to help them with their pelvic floor muscle training is is really worthwhile and that's kind of our aim
1: yeah and and those exercises that you know, lots of people would have heard of them as being kegels, yeah, right? Is, that, is right. that how you say kegels? Yeah, okay. kegels, right? Yeah. And that, that's kind of like a famous kind of concept in the world. But like you say, you know, what? What are you squeezing, lifting, and holding? How do you know if you're doing it right? It's well, not it's like exactly, you yeah. look at your form doing a bicep curl or something, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, how did you become aware of that problem that people weren't able to monitor or understand really how those Kegels or pelvic floor exercises were working. How did you become aware of that problem and set out to solve that?
2: Um, So, yeah, uh, my background many, many years ago is clinical. So um, midwifery, actually. So I became very, and have always been very passionate about women's health, particularly maternal women's health. Um, I was a midwife for a lot of part of my career and I know that actually the birth process in itself leads us at risk for these complications that happen afterwards. Your pelvic floor muscles, because of their anatomical locations, are involved in the birth process. Sometimes they don't spring back to normal and uh, you need to exercise them as I've explained after the baby's born, but because of where they are, we don't know. I was lucky in that after I decided to go back to academia, I did a a master's degree in um, childbirth and then a PhD looking at sports and exercise and elite athletes and their pelvic floor and childbirth. And then I got a um, postdoc, which is after a fellowship at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. And that was fortuitous in that the skill set at the institute means I had access to engineers that could build stuff, basically. And so probably 10 or 12 years ago now, I um, started, when I got the first fellowship, a research group within the institute that comprised a number of engineers, clinicians, um and we knew that there was an unmet clinical need. And that unmet clinical need was how do we accurately measure things? And that's what the engineers at the institute are good at. They create instrumentation to measure physiological processes typically. And um, I've, I've been incredibly lucky to have been associated with very smart engineers who have managed to, um, together with all our clinicians, over the past, honestly, a decade, create something which we now are really confident in that can measure accurately changes in pressure which will give women very good biofeedback as to what's happening at the level of the pelvic floor because we knew that women didn't know, couldn't see and um, all the devices that were currently out there were uh, not as good Good as we were hoping, they couldn't accurately measure what we really wanted to measure. So um, it's been a process. <laughs> it's been a long process, but um, we've kind of got there at the end. So, uh,
1: how does the solution work? Like, what does the product like look like? How do pe- how do women use it? How do people use it?
2: So the device itself is um, very slim. It's very flexible. Uh, it's made of a meri- medical grade silicon and it consists of eight tiny little pressure sensors. It's an intravaginal device, so it, you pop it in much like you would a tampon. It sits along the length of the vagina and then when you are able to do a contraction, it connects to an app on your phone and each of those little sensors is represented by a bar. And so the instructions to the users are to keep the purple bars higher than the black bar. So typically, as I said, you get verbal instruction to squeeze and lift and hold. But what a lot of women do is they squeeze their tummy muscles, they squeeze the butt together, they clench their legs, um, and it's difficult. I mean, if I asked you to squeeze and lift your pelvic floor now, what would you do?
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't know if I was doing it right or wrong. Exactly, exactly.
2: So um, we're on the way for men, but not quite yet. Mm. But for women, um, it's it's very it's a very simple instruction in that they can then see if they are doing those exercises effectively so the key issues are effective pelvic floor muscle exercises and the exercises have to be of an intensity that actually will change that muscle so when you go to the gym and you do bicep curls or whatever you need to do it at a certain intensity and so many repetitions with a certain weight to make a difference and it's the same it's a muscle so you need to actually exercises it sufficiently in order to make that change Um, so yeah (laughs) what kind of
1: impact does that have because I mean like any um, uh, device right like it can tell you you're doing it right but you still need to do the
0: work right you still need to
1: do uh, sufficient exercise to strengthen the muscles like how long does it take and and what are typical uh, well I, I mean are there typical effects I imagine it's a very personal and different thing with different people
2: Yeah. um, So what we have done is, um, because I've come from academia, the program that the app delivers is a um, program that's been tested in something called a randomized control trial. We know it's effective. It takes 12 weeks, so three months, and it's progressive in nature. The types of exercises you do are not just a squeeze and hold. You do four different types of exercise, and you also change from a lying position, sitting, standing. So it becomes Functional. So most women leak when they're standing, so you need to be able to exercise that muscle in the position that you're you're feeling most vulnerable or you're most compromised or getting those symptoms. Um, and and the changes you'll see is you'll stop leaking. So um, <laughs> and that's that's really the results that we are seeing. With your pelvic floor muscles, they support your bladder, They support the organs of the pelvis. So in women that's not just your bladder, that's your uterus your back passage and sometimes those things too are compromised when your pelvic floor is not functioning well and so you need to strengthen your pelvic floor muscles in order to maintain those organs in the correct position as well. So pelvic floor muscle exercises can also help with symptoms such as something called pelvic organ prolapse, it's when those organs tend to fall down, um, common again, not as common as incontinence but common enough and um Simple, what we call conservative management. So using those muscles, training those muscles to function better will help with those symptoms as well. And with
1: something like this that, you know, as we said, can affect up to one to three women, but if it's concentrated in women over 40, uh, people over 40, you know, it, it strikes me as being something quite similar to menopause where
2: yeah,
1: it affects so many people yeah uh, you know within that age group right and has been pretty much culturally absent right absent just not there in the culture except as like a punchline or something you know um very stereotypical and certainly not kind of you know raised up and and, and made normal and 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 and, and helping more people understand what people are experiencing. So this must, that one in three woman must concentrate very heavily in a similar area, right? Like, how have you found uh, going out and building support and talking about it and developing and and, and getting this problem addressed?
2: Um, Again, I think I've been quite lucky, having come from academics, is I've got a very large network, a large network of people who've worked in the area for a long time. Uh, um, the challenge now is to get it out to the general public. So having conversations around menopause, having conversations around post-baby, actually having conversations around high-impact sport um, is really important to get the word out that this is not a condition that's normal, I'm going to say it again, it's not normal, <laughs> Um and, and, and it's about raising the awareness that you can do something about it. So, yes, networking for me in the beginning is how we started, um, but now we're much more into an area where we're using more sort of um, accepted mechanisms such as marketing and advertising and pushing products to other jurisdictions such as the UK, uh, Australia. We've got a good groundswell in New Zealand, Um but pushing out to these other global areas where there's a much bigger market will again um, help the business as well as making it more accessible for women internationally. How did you
1: go about going from recognising this problem at the Institute to building a product and turning it into a business with backers and all the rest of it? How does that process go?
2: It's tricky. (laughs) So as I said, um, building the product took 10 years of research. So initially it was a concept. Uh, it has been part of students and um, all of the researchers' programs to get it right for a long time. We have been supported by government grants, luckily, and we made the decision probably back in 2019 to actually make it into a company to take it to Uh, The wider public it wasn't a decision that was taken lightly it was a decision that we really wanted to grow the medical device industry within New Zealand again backed by a government grant and um, we made a decision at that point too that we would be a medical device company which meant we had strict regulatory um, standards to conform to which made our process a little bit longer than we would have but again, it's about um, getting credibility. It's about working with healthcare professionals and accessing those that treat women to know that this is a real valid solution for their patients as well as for women, generally speaking, in the general population. Um, so it, was, it wasn't it was an easy process, <laughs> but... Um, we're very happy where we, the place that we're at now.
1: There's that famous expression that hardware is hard. And if you then add on top of that medical regulations and what it takes to be able to um, make a device that's used internally as well, right? Like those are those are very, very high bars to cross.
2: They are high bars to cross. And... Um, when you do embark on a journey where you've got a piece of hardware and it's a medical device, piece of hardware and software, uh, we sometimes say we are a um, hardware-enabled software company because the software also has to go through the regulatory approval process. But it is—it isn't easy. It takes a lot of time and a lot of resource to go through, make your facility compliant with all the standards um, for the manufacturing part of things and also then to to apply and go through all the documentation to get your quality management system up and running and to jump through the hoops and the many hoops. It's taken us about two years to get to the point um, where we've just submitted for our FDA approval.
1: Wow, and at the same time making it feel like it's a easy, <laughs> simple, you don't have to think about it product.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> and we'll be back in a moment to talk about growing the business and the world of women's health tech. Hey, Business is Boring listener. Have you ever wanted to come along to a live Business is Boring record? Because we have one happening Tuesday, January the 30th from 3pm at the Spark NZ building, Victoria Street West in Auckland City. We're going to be talking to the Spark Sustainability Director, Leela Gantman, and the CEO of the Sustainable Business Network, Rachel Brown, and discussing how you can set the right sustainability strategy for your business. If you'd like to head along, that's 3pm, Tuesday, January 30th, we'd love to have you. Drop us a line to RSVP or to find out more on commercial at thespinoff.co.nz. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Hōki mai Noor, welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're with Dr Jenny Kruger of Junofem. So how was it to raise when you made that decision in 2019 to go out as a company from the Institute? How did you find it raising? As the, You know, it's so well known how underfunded and how many blind spots there are in the world of traditional funding, for things that are focused on, you know, the biggest possible market there is, women?
2: Yes. Um, it it wasn't easy. It isn't easy. Uh, and as um, you know, a lot of women health tech, femtech is terribly underfunded. Um, and there, there are a lot of statistics around it. Uh, you alluded to 4% of all companies... Women's health tech have been funded, and I should imagine that's not much more than than that now.
1: Yeah, oh, sorry, just to jump in, that was a stat that was in an article written about you—a great mm. article by Damien Venuto—that I think we chatted before the podcast, saying that only four percent of the funding traditionally has been
2: put towards things. What well, and that is bananas, right? Yeah, it is pretty bananas. Um, but it, it's been it's been probably uh, historical, I think. From my own experience, many times when I have pitched, I've pitched to predominantly an audience of men. Um, often there will be women in the room and because the topic is, is quite sensitive anyway, you will have many women nodding <laughs> when you describe the problem, the size of the market. But it's difficult, I think, when you cannot relate to the what you are interested in investing in. At the same time, of course, you have to present a good business proposal Uh Investors are not just interested in the topic. they want to return on their money and and that's what the investing scene is all about. So I think along with um, getting yourself over the line, you do have to have a good business proposal and you do have to have you know your strategies all in place so that they can have confidence in your business. But it just takes it just means that your time spent trying to engage with your audience is much longer when it's predominated by, an audience that perhaps can't relate or doesn't relate, um, you know, if it's a male-dominated uh, audience. And as I say, for me personally, that has been my experience is most of the people I've spoken to have been typically uh, dominated. Um, that's just what it is. Um, but we have been fortunate. We've had great support, um, I'll just mention here, from our investors. So um, in particularly, we are a spin out of the University of Auckland, Um Our transfer office, UniServices, have been very supportive. Our main investor, GD1, uh, have been very supportive and have helped get us off, you know, off the starting mark. You're always looking to raise money. We never have enough money. But, (laughs) um, you know, we are a, a medical device, but we sit on between a consumer device and a medical device. So we're not, we wouldn't be considered picked up by hospitals, for instance, because you've got to have a lot of health economics data behind you before they will buy into a product like this. Um, So we do sit on that cusp uh, or or that ridge between sort of direct-to-consumer and um, through healthcare professionals.
1: Tell us about that. Like, How would uh, people, how would women, uh, you know, be introduced to it. Would it be a medical practitioner advising them, or would they seek you out or find you online or through communities and then purchase it themselves? Or so yeah, what both. are the avenues? Yeah,
2: it's both. Um, as I said, mentioned, you know, I have quite a large network. We definitely are building our credibility amongst healthcare professionals, and many physiotherapists, particularly pelvic floor physiotherapists, know about us. Uh, we like to support them and their patients. We're very different from other medical devices that are on the market or not medical devices, other devices that are on the market. The physiotherapists can use it in the clinic as well as the um, patients can use it at home. Um, but if women want to, they can go directly to our website and buy it. You don't need to be referred. It's not something that you do have to see a healthcare professional for. So there's both um pathways to purchases. You can either be referred through your healthcare professional, uh, you can, if you want to, the healthcare professional can help keep an eye on your data. It's 12 weeks, you know, you've got to keep going. And so there's that capacity if the patient agrees, the healthcare professional can actually look at the data as you're going through. Um, But that's not absolutely necessary. We as a company also have um, algorithms that run over that data. We can put up red flags if we see something's going wrong um we try and help you with adherence
1: yeah so so it's like hardware software and a program of delivery Absolutely. and a, yeah, yeah that that can be self directed Yep, or done in, in in unison with a medical professional yep yep another one of these facts that you know um you know, you know, and and this has been your whole career. So, so sorry to be like wandering into this as you know a total noob and just being very surprised. But you know, finding out recently how many of the medical research tests had just been with white men and hadn't had any woman in the drug testing groups and hadn't had you know if. Eth- eth- the ethnic background kind of spreads and stuff. It's kind of bananas, you know, to to to, to see that that's how the system has been. How have you found, um, you know, researching and building a case around this uh, for people to understand and into, the, into an environment like that?
2: Yeah, so traditionally, most of all our um, medical research has been done in men. So from heart disease to... Um, orthopedics and as you mentioned any drug testing usually has been done with men it's been a hard um, road to get women involved with these sort of clinical trials working in the field of maternal health uh, um, it's it's somewhat easier <laughs> because <laughs> it is focused around women in terms of childbirth at least but incontinence um, affects women more than it affects men but it's not exclusive um, I might add just there but Building a case for us, again, it's um, it's more tricky than if you had something that was really conventional, uh, you know, that would include both sexes. So it's, um, yeah, but you, you're right. Most medical research has always been um, as a result of clinical trials with men. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and like... Um, about
1: your journey as the the CEO of the company as well, like how has that journey been for you from after building a career in midwifery and in research and, uh, you know, in, in the um, institute? How it been to then go out and do all the things that it takes to raise money, build a team, get a device over the line, do the marketing, have plates spinning in 100 places at once?
2: Yeah, um, it's a totally uh, huge learning curve. Mm-hmm. I think uh, building a team has been enormously helpful building a good team I think as somebody new to this very new to this um, I didn't know a lot about anything but I now know a little bit about everything and I think what's important there is that then you can get in those expertise to know more about the areas that you only know a little bit about so like marketing I don't I don't know anything about marketing, but I know a little bit. So to get people in there who are experts, you can um, know enough to know whether they're going to be doing a good job. I don't need to know about TikTok, but I need to know it exists and I need to know how to leverage off those kind of things. And the same goes, I I guess, for things like, um, you know, finances and all that kind of thing. As the co-founder and CEO, I need to be the face of the company and also to do the fundraising mostly. And that was a very, um, and still is, a very uh, steep learning curve. Um, You naturally, I think, slip back into the areas that you're comfortable in. And my area is healthcare. My area is um, making a difference for women's health. But I am aware that in order to do that, we need a, a viable company. And so to do that, we need investment. So, how do we do that? <laughs> and, and that's that's the tricky bits, and those are the bits that have been um, big learnings for me.
1: And what is the big vision for the company? Like, what is that story for uh, taking Juno Fem and FemFit to the world?
2: So, our mission is to be the most trusted solution for women's pelvic floor health globally. That is our mission. Um, As I mentioned, we're having a big push into the UK now. Um, We've got a lot of traction there in terms of the physiotherapists. Of course, it's a much bigger market, but they do have um, or they seem to have a lot more conversations around these issues than New Zealand or Australia at the moment. So there's a lot of publicity in incontinence. There's a lot of publicity around menopause. There's a lot more awareness um, in the general public that this is an issue. Uh, the the concept of incontinence is openly spoken about in, in the more general publications. Menopause movements have been springing up everywhere. It's become quite commonplace in the workplace in many of these large organizations in the UK to be aware of menopause. I think it's coming here, yeah? but it's still um, not as open as it is in the UK. So, uh, yeah, we're quite excited about that. Yeah,
1: and, and you know, just as an observer of the, the culture, I mean, there are some people doing some really great advocacy work here to bring uh, more, more discussion about menopause and the experience into the consciousness, mm. but um, working from a very low base, right?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, I guess you have to start somewhere, and I'm delighted to see that the conversations are becoming much more prominent in, you know, in the general public space. Uh, both here in Australia, but we have a way to go, I think, um, to make it more open and out there.
1: What advice do you have for people who are looking to, you know, turn a great idea and a great product into
2: a company? I think if you've got a great idea and you want to build a product or you have a product, I think the first thing to do is really – Uh, test your assumptions, make sure that there actually is a market, Um, make sure that whatever it is you're building or whatever ideas you have and you're wanting to create a company, that somebody will pay for your services or your product. And all of us make assumptions. We all think whatever it is we're doing is great, it's fantastic. But until you test that and really test it honestly, not just ask your mates and friends and family, um, you might end up building something and spending ages and years and many tears to find that actually nobody really wants what you've come up with. So I think that would be my one piece of advice is really test your market and test how you're going to get into that market. How are you going to sell way before you start spending hours and bucket loads of money into actually creating something.
1: That's so interesting, hey, because even if it makes logical sense, it doesn't mean it works that way in the world, does it? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And as a final thought, what will success be for you and what will success be for the company?
2: Well, for the company, I think success will be when we are, um, you know, the most respected company in terms of pelvic floor health for women. When people know who we are, uh, they associate us with pelvic floor health. Um, and for me personally is um, when I'm not needed anymore, <laughs> when you can make me redundant and that's success.
1: Ah, that's lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing the story so far and can't wait to see where you take it next. That's Dr Jenny Gruger of
2: JunoFam. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much to Jenny for joining us, to you for listening, and to everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Aihei Butler. Do follow and leave us a review if you like what we do. It really does help. And we'll see you soon in e Nohora.
0: From the Spinoff Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by Spark Lab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on Spark Lab, visit sparklab.co.nz.